0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
2: At Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
2: This is the Matt
3: Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
3: BYU Radio. You know, we just learned a lot about uh, how the breakups impact us. Maybe it's some of those breakups that are keeping people from wanting to move forward and date anyway. I have a lot of clients that come and talk to me and they're like, oh, is my... Is my millennial or my young adult ever going to get married? And, you know, as somebody that looks over, you know, a desk every day from a young millennial, the answer to that is obviously no. No, they're not. It's never going to happen. At least this one's not. At least this one's not. Even if you make all the ice cream in the world, Ben, it still may not happen. But a lot of people are like, that's fine. That's fine. I don't want my kid married yet you know? Interesting. Uh, we've had we've had some great guests on recently um, that, of course, you, you don't need to push your kid to get married, but there will be a point where you'll be thinking, seriously, are you ever going to get married? When is this going to happen? So we wanted today to, I wanted to spend a little bit of time in the coach's corner talking about marriage. Mowage. And it, when you think about it, it's not always you know it's it's not always that we we just are choosing not to get married i mean there are a lot of reasons why people aren't dating aren't getting married in fact next hour we'll be we'll be talking to a an expert um who works and coaches with coaches singles and and does everything she can to help them um create a healthier and and i think happier uh happier life. But w- there's there's certain things that have to be there. And and if somebody wants to get married, there's four needs I teach that have to be in play. You, you, you got to have you got to want four things while you're dating to create, I think, some movement. The first one is you got to be you got to want to be in the game. Um, and we had uh, a great expert on Brian Willoughby here from Brigham Young University that talked about Uh, a few uh, a week ago or so about the fact that so many people are missing the market. They're not even in the dating game. They're just not in it. They may have taken themselves out while they're finishing a program. You know, they're finishing their degree. Many people decide that they're not even going to date seriously until they are older, until they have finished school, for example. Or some will say, I'm not going to date seriously till I'm through my first year of law school. Or until I'm done with medical school or until I've, you know, until I finish this program or this certificate or I'm back from an internship. And the minute you set that that goal in your head that you're not going to do something until then, you may be removing yourself from the game. In the end, you've got to you've gotta be available when people are available. And I think a lot of us uh and especially And we're doing them for good reasons. There's a lot of uh, kids that go on LDS missions and they remove themselves for two years to go on an LDS mission and they're not in the dating game for two years. Now, many people would say, well, I know but that's fine, but you'll come back and there's other people to date. Well, except um, a lot of times you date who you know and you date your, the people from your cohort, the people from your age group. And when you pull yourself out for an extended period of time from an age group and a, and a group of people that you know, you actually might be shrinking or the, the size of the market around you might be shrinking as you're out of the game. And you just assume you can inject yourself back into that market and all of a sudden find your partner. But that may not always be the case. Like uh, like Brian Willoughby was teaching us, the ideal age for the happiest marriages, believe it or not, are ages 22 to 25, We've talked about other research on the show that said if you got married at 29, you'll you'll be the happy you'll have a good marriage, but the research shows what you'll have is the least likely marriage to divorce. That doesn't necessarily equate to the happiest marriage. Happiest marriages with the least likely chance of divorcing happen between 22 and 25. And again, if you're planning on – if you're 27 by the time you're deciding to get married, you may be you know out of the market, out of the game. So there's something going on obviously because people are choosing to get married older. Another reason is simply because they, they don't necessarily have a pro-marriage role model. For example, uh, their parents are sitting there saying, do not get married young. Don't get married young. Get, just wait, wait. Get your degree. Once you've got your degree, so even the parents are pushing, wait to get the degree. But then parents, if you're pushing your children to wait, then you shouldn't be surprised when they do. Make sense? You can't really have it both ways. Yeah, but you didn't know this guy, Matt. This guy was such a loser. You did not know this guy. So if you want to promote marriage in your life with your kids and your young adults, then you've got to be a pro-marriage parent. That might also mean you've got to like being married yourself. If your kids see that you hate marriage, that might be another reason why these millennials are saying, I don't know if I want to go there. My mom hates it. My dad can't stand it. If you don't make marriage look appealing, then why would we expect people to do it? So one of the benefits of being a millennial today is you, you've seen how your parents have handled their lives. So, That may be one reason you're choosing not to be in the game is you never had a pro-marriage role model. You never had somebody that saw the benefit or the need or the love of it. Another reason um, that uh, we've talked about recently on the show, too, is that you got to want it. And there's a big uh, issue with attachment that they're finding out that your ability to attach to another human being is probably one of the most important skills or tools you've got in your life. Do you feel like, just as you're a listener today, do you feel like you have a really strong ability to connect in and attach in a healthy way to another person? Do you feel like you're healthy about it, or do you feel like you're more desperate for them, needy for them? According to the research, uh, some of the latest research that uh, Dr. Vanita Mehta shared with us a while ago is you've got um, about... Uh, Since In the last 20 years, since about 1988, that people have become more unhealthily um, attached. So 60% of the people today have an unhealthy ability to attach. They don't attach well, which was weird because 20 years ago, it was about 50% had an attachment issue. Only 50% had an attachment issue. Today 60% have an attachment issue, which means only 40% of the people in your dating pool have the ability to in, to attach in a healthy way. That might be another reason why people are prolonging marriage. So and we talked about it, the fact if you if you don't have a strong attachment then some tendencies you'll have, one thing is to just simply be, you know, um basically not into wanting to get married. You actually are not pro-marriage. You actually, you don't want to marry, A, but you actually don't see a need for it. So you become kind of an anti-marriage evangelist. And if you start becoming somebody that doesn't need marriage, then that will pretty much ensure you're not going to find somebody that's going to want you. Another thing we do is we get preoccupied. If I am not into healthy attachment, then I might get more preoccupied with my life, my business, my work, my degrees. And I think so some of these kids that are just too busy and they're prolonging their their idea of getting married, they just – it's not that they don't see a need for it. They want to get married. It's just going to happen after they're done with school. So imagine that you're dating somebody like that. That's a hard date. Somebody that doesn't – is not anxiously wanting to be with you. Um, and so we'll just wait three more years. Then we cohabitate and that creates other issues uh, as far as marriage stability. Uh, couples that do cohabitate before aren't happier. They are less likely to get married. They're less likely to to actually make the relationship work. So. Um, interesting, just interesting stats from the researchers. Um, The other thing that people tend to do if they're not necessarily uh, able to attach in a healthy way, they tend to fear relationships. And when they fear them, they're not so excited to get into them. And then the last simple rule is some people uh, just don't know how to date, they don't know how to do it. And they don't have the skills, they don't have the ability, they've never taken a class, they've never read a book. And they've never been good at it by just dating on their own. And it creates problems. So You got to want it. You got to be in the game. You got to have role models that are pro marriage and you got to know how to do it. And if you don't have those things, then it's going to, you're probably going to slow down your path. So, parents, you know, don't just sit there and complain. Sit down and talk to your kids. Is it one of those issues? Are they just not in the game? They're not around people to date. Where do you find a date today if you don't go to a bar? If you're somebody that's not going to go to a bar and drink, Where do you find the date? At work? Well, I'm working. (laughs) And they dissuade us from dating at work. Okay? So you can't find them necessarily at work. And if you're done with school or if you're not going to school, it's hard to find a date. And are are you a great role model, parents? Have you taught your child, you know, the importance of relationships, the importance of marriage, that they're not disposable, that we don't just throw them away? Anyway, just a little uh, coach's corner for you. Instead of worrying about your child eventually getting married, why don't you just talk to them, find out what's going on in their life and uh, be their coach, be their guide on the side. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Brings back such memories. Welcome back, folks. You know, traumatic brain injuries, also known as TBI and concussions, are a major cause of death and disability in the United States and contribute to about 30% of all injury deaths. With Will Smith's starring role as the Nigerian forensic pathologist in the movie Concussion, It's brought nationwide attention to the negative effects of TBI, but what can we do to prevent these types of injuries? Here to speak with us today is Dr. David Smith, President and CEO of Traumatic Brain Injuries. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Hi, Matt. Good to talk to you today.
3: This, uh, boy, concussions have been in the news quite a bit uh, for about the last couple of years at least. Um, I know they've been part of your life for a long time. What... What is there to learn from nature? Uh, Woodpeckers, for example, uh, I've read some of your work about um, bringing up there's much to learn how animals, you know, bighorn sheep, ram heads, woodpeckers are banging their head all day long. How come they can do it, but our NFL football players and our military can't?
2: Well, that's exactly right. Um, I was actually poised with the question about 10 years ago, kind of off the cuff and jokingly. I was at a conference at the Army Research Lab, and at the end of my presentation on an unrelated topic, somebody jokingly thought that the presentation was clever, and why don't clever people ever figure out brain injury? Was what the military had asked, and of course, One of the guys in the front row said, I think if somebody could figure out how a woodpecker can smack its head against a tree and fly away without a headache, we'd have the whole problem solved. Yeah. Well, everybody cracked up laughing except me. I love those types of conundrums, and I ended up um, not having anyone paying me as a consultant, but to just basically see if I could figure out if God and nature had figured this out already. So I uh, immersed myself into all of the highly G-force tolerant animals and the woodpecker being the, the most obvious one. Um, and about nine months later, came up with how uh, how that must be happening and coined it slosh theory.
3: Slosh theory. Um, OK, so first of all, too, what are some other oh. G-force, you know, uh, surviving animals, woodpeckers, horn she- yeah. sheep, bighorn sheep?
2: All right, woodpeckers, uh, they smack their heads against trees 12,000 times a day, 80 million times in their lifespan, and they they literally have a G-force of 1,200 Gs, where you and I might get a concussion one impact at 50 Gs. You're right, head ramming sheep are around Jeez. 500 Gs. But then there's all of the different predator birds. So there's owls, there's uh, even bats, which of course are a mammal, not a bird. You know, they're pulling 20 and 25 G's at a time, And at least in a centrifuge. In the military, most of us pass out when we're going and pulling 9 G's in a centrifuge. So it was obvious to me that the answer was sitting in front of us and that there was an answer. For someone such as myself, who's always being tasked to try to, uh, you know, figure complex situations out, uh, you never really know if you're going to have an answer. You're going to try. Mm. But in this particular situation, you can just look at nature and know that there was an answer and that that mankind has obviously missed the mark on this one.
3: Is it, and it's, I guess explain the physiology of it, the brain is in a skull and it's not meant to stop quickly. And or I guess even start quickly. Right? It's not well, meant correct. to stop or start because it'll it'll bruise. It'll bang against the interior of the of the skull. Well, is that right. how it works. And
2: the, the te- yeah, the 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 whole topic is called uh hydrodynamics. And actually NASA was the one to first figure this out. Way back in the nineteen sixties, they were having catastrophic effects of sending rocket ships into outer space as the liquid fuel containers would dissipate, and then the fuel level would decrease, and all the energies could actually be absorbed from the rocket engines, and they would explode. Mm. So a sloshing fluid uh, moving around inside of a moving container was deemed a slosh. All All I did was take somebody else's brilliance and throw it over here into mankind. We have moving containers called skulls, and we're filled with mostly liquid up there. It's venous and arterial blood, but as well as CSF, and then brain. Hmm. So it may be that the brain's the innocent bystander, and really the problem is is the fluid-filled aspect of the brain.
3: The slosh theory. Um, So then... Apparently, these other animals, these birds, they they also have. I guess they have more cushioning in because they have they have less slosh. Is that the theory?
2: Well, in a woodpecker's case, it does. It actually has a decreased amount of intracranial space. But what most of these guys have is what I kind of connected the dots and found the thread. They all had ways of mitigating or altering the fluid volume inside their brain. Mm. And it turns out that as I started looking into woodpeckers, they, they called them actually uh, cavity nesting birds. And I had no idea what a cavity nesting bird was. And I started actually looking into that, and every single one on the list were these highly G-force tolerant predator birds. And I thought, oh, my God, that. that sounds odd and started looking into it further and started to realize that uh you know in a cavity inside of a woodpecker nest there's huge levels of carbon dioxide nearly 300 times as much carbon dioxide inside of a woodpecker cavity and believe it or not Someone's out there measuring these things. All I did was uncover what other people had done and then connect those dots again. But then as you start looking ahead, ramming sheep, you know, the sheep have these massive horn cores underneath their skull, and they're attached to their respiratory tree, and they're attached to their horns. And inside those horn cords are huge, huge levels of CO2. Well, CO2 turns out to be the strongest determinant of how much fluid pressure and volume goes up into the brain space. So it suddenly clicked on me who's an internist who looks into these types of physiological things. You know, I think that's what enabled me to suddenly realize, Well, wait a minute, CO2 is not the the horrible, horrific thing that society has come to believe. It's critical for actual monitoring and maintaining of volume and pressure in the brain. So that's where it first clicked, and then I talked to one of the carbon dioxide gods of the world up in Toronto, and he pointed out that another mechanism, that uh, sounds like Quinkenstadt maneuver, because I had also looked into the neck structure of the woodpecker, and there's this wild apparatus that actually compresses its jugular vein, and no one had ever been able to figure out why that woodpecker's tongue looks like this. It's called the omohyoid apparatus. And it actually starts on the top of its beak, goes up over the top of its skull, and then comes back around the neck and compresses. It's a bizarre-looking animal when you actually take the skin off and look at it. And uh, ultimately, this compression is very similar to what had been studied way back in the early 1900s by Dr. Quinkenstadt. So it became clear to us that since that was a safe maneuver that we might be able to actually backfill the cranial space with a tiny amount of excess blood. Blood that occurs every time you cough or sneeze or every time you raise your arms or even if you just lie down, that's how much fluid and blood moves back up into the brain space. It's about three to four cc's of fluid and gentle constriction um, enables this backfilling um, into the brain space, and then this thing called the compensatory reserve volume. It's a big word. It just means all the excess room is taken up, and it's like bubble wrap. And it literally prevents the brain from moving around. And just like you can walk away from a car accident when your airbags go off, and, you know, your, your seat belts are firing, you can also walk away from a, a concussive type event where your head hits another football player or a blast wave comes across you in the same manner. The forces go through you instead of being absorbed by you.
3: Wow! So, you know, animals—they've evolved these things. Are you, are you suggesting that we can actually train uh, athletes or uh, to create more flow into their brain?
2: No, it's even—it's even cooler than that. Every single vertebrate on the planet Earth, all of us. Every animal with a spine has an omohyoid and digastric muscle. And the only known action of the omohyoid muscle is what I just described. Wow. Here. Prior to our work, we knew of no action of the omohyoid muscle. Everybody thought it was just a vestige of evolution and that it was extinguishing. But wait a minute. If that was true, why does every single creature <laughs> still have one? And
0: Interesting.
2: so it became clear to me that somebody was missing the true f- physiological function of this this muscular device, and all we decided, and, and I, and what brought us and my work to to the forefront, was we could facilitate this muscle. So we may have evolved away from from needing it and using it uh, for the last thousand years. I, I guess nature didn't really think that we needed to bang into trees, right? So we Thank we exactly. really haven't utilized it so much until football and wars started coming into place, and that's when, in fact we kind of could use that same physiological mechanism. We we started with rats and we were able to actually put little tiny rat collars on these uh, <laughs> rats and and then impart a, a study maneuver called the Marmorow Protocol. Dr. Bales was one of the two characters in the movie Concussion and I actually saw him presenting to Congress um, on behalf of the NFL Players Association, what the, the dilemma of concussion and chronic traumatic encephalopathy was, and I jokingly said to the person next to me that, oh, you know, I think I think Dr. Bales needs to meet me. And I woke I, up the next morning and I kind of repeated that mantra. Wait a minute, he needs. To I meet shouldn't me. be joking. I think he really needs to meet me. And I ended up picking up the phone that morning, and you wouldn't believe the conversation trying to get through his secretary when I I told the chief of neurosurgery, uh, or told the secretary that the chief of neurosurgery had to come to the phone and talk to a guy about woodpeckers. (laughs) But she let me through on the phone, and Dr. Bales ultimately was, uh, you know, had the insight, just as he did with Bennett Amalu in the movie, he had the insight to call me a, a quack and call me crazy, but he said my concepts and ideas were plausible he put me in the in front of multiple different scientific minds in his department and ultimately they uh, they did this massive study with these rats he told me the night before that uh, you know science has never been able to block even 1% of concussion helmets have never blocked 1% hmm. of concussion so he said if we block 2 or 3% you know, he will open every door on the planet Earth for me. Well, we blocked 83% of concussive damage
3: by, wearing by the, his study. By wearing the collars, by wearing, the, the mice, by the rats wearing the collars. That's right. Unbelievable. So he did, uh, he did open
2: every door on the planet. He introduced me to a company called Q30 Labs who invested heavily into creating this device for human use. We went off and have done about 25 to 27 different safety studies. Uh, I then uh, hitched my wagon to a guy named uh, Dr. Gregory Meyer. He's the head of Human Research Lab at of Cincinnati Children's Hospital. This is one of the largest institutions in the world for studying humans. We ended up putting collars made for humans um, after five years of development and fail-safing the best we could onto humans and started studying them in Cincinnati, Ohio, at St. Xavier High School and Moeller High Schools. In the hockey field, we started and had a dramatic reduction in brain injury measured by tensor MRIs. And then the, this landmark article was released in January of this last year, followed immediately thereafter by even a larger study in football, again showing rather drastic and dramatic changes and alterations or improvements in the amount of damage that was seen.
3: Less lessons from the woodpecker. Dr. David Smith, let's take a break. We'll come back. I want to continue and find out uh, what the future looks like then with traumatic tra- traumatic brain injuries and some of this new t- technology, This uh, just a simple collar uh, changing possibly concussions overall. Stick with us, folks. Helping you see the good in the world and uh, see the people making it happen. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Concussions, we talk about them on the show. uh, The fear of our children playing little league sports, soccer, a lot of concussions in soccer with uh, these kids all trying to, you know, push their heads toward the sky to head a ball into the goal, and then they bang heads. Concussion, football, concussion, lacrosse, concussion, uh, falling off your bike, concussion, concussion. You name it, skiing, concussion. Everyone's wearing helmets, and yet it's not decreasing the amount of concussions we're having necessarily because it just doesn't work that way. Joining us is Dr. David Smith, who has uh, been learning from the woodpecker, from uh, bighorn sheep, also from predator birds about how come all of these animals can pull all of these Gs, banging heads, banging their head eight million times as a woodpecker does, and not get a concussion? Well apparently it's about, uh, I guess, Dr. Uh, Smith, it's about fluid management then, right? We These animals and birds tend to have more fluid protecting the brain than the average human, I guess.
2: Well, they've learned to contain that fluid. And and again, the the, the cranium is not uh, half full, etc., right. but there's space, and things can actually expand and contract. There's pressure-sensitive membranes, if you will, that can basically fill up and, like bubble wrap, contain the brain space, and that's what these creatures have figured out how to modulate, and God gave us that same mechanism, it's just we've not learned to utilize it. Yeah. So it's it's one of these things that even just a yawn, when you raise your arms up over your head, it actually compresses your jugular and digastric muscles, so that if you fear this physiology in some way, for goodness sakes, don't ever yawn because
3: it's... <laughs> it's happening all methods. the time. So then you invented a collar, you tested it on rats, and uh, those tests proved that you could stop about 83 percent, I think it was, of concussions. You've then now moved to uh, being a visiting research scientist at Cincinnati Children's Medical Center, I guess, and that's where you're doing more studies now on humans.
2: Right. Um, again, Greg Meyer and his group down at Cincinnati Children's has now moved into a larger football study again with Xavier and Muller High School. But also, we have, as you had mentioned, switched over to soccer. And believe it or not, uh, one of the highest levels of concussion rate are in young women's soccer uh, fields. Yeah. And so we've initiated a very huge study down uh, in the same region. Uh, on women's soccer. So that's that stay tuned. That's that should hopefully the results of that should be coming up here in the next couple of months. We're um also on the Yale rugby team. We've um we've undergone multiple studies uh per the FDA here in the United States to make sure that we don't cause an increase in bleeding if an animal or a human were to suffer a traumatic bleed huh. inside their brain and I had predicted that there'd be an improvement, but the FDA was concerned that, you know, at least not be any worse than if the collar were not on. Well, we did these studies at um, North Shore uh, University with Dr. Bales, again, the gentleman in the movie Concussion. Dr. Bales' group found a 300% reduction in brain bleed when the collar was on using large 300 pound swine, pigs that had a small impactor to force a bleed. So, everything seems to be going along swimmingly. We uh, have made it through the Canadian, European, and and Australian FDA equivalent. But we're a little tougher here in the United States. And so, um, like I say, we're at 27 different safety and efficacy studies. We've probably got five major universities that have touched this project. I can't even count how many investigators, PhDs, and MDs that have actually been involved so far.
3: Now, explain the caller. It's I guess all it. What does it do, and how does it work? How does it actually, you know, keep? Does it open up a space that muscle in our in our body? What does it do?
2: Yeah, you know, it it appears simplistic, but I assure you, there's over five million dollars worth of engineering (laughs) that has gone into this. Um, This is what we're calling
3: the Kerr collar,
2: the Q collar, the
3: Q collar, yeah.
2: After after Dr. Quinkenshott, who again evolved this theory way back in 1918. Um, It it basically serves to put mild compression, um, a very, very trivial amount. If you reach onto the back of your hand, turn your hand over and see one of those veins, if you reach down and just touch one of those veins until it collapses, that's the amount of pressure of the venous system of your hand. But in your jugular vein... It's one-sixth of that because there's a column of fluid under the jugular vein collapsing it already. There's a column of fluid on top of your hand, making that be a pressure of about 15 to 20 millimeters of mercury. So the amount of pressure is, is astoundingly minimal, but you have to hit the jugular vein. So the collar is, is fashioned after that omohyoid apparatus of a woodpecker. It transects and comes across from right to left, and it dissects right directly across the same path of the omohyoid muscle and gently pushes that omohyoid muscle further into the jugular vein. Hmm. And again, it's built to do that already. If you ask any surgeon who's ever dissected that part of the neck, this omohyoid muscle is attached to your jugular. It's not close. It's attached to it. Well, God nature wouldn't do that if it was somehow harmful. Right. And... And again, all all we had to do was just apply a little extra pressure. And I'm telling you, it's well tolerated. All of these kids initially put the collar on and they go, wow, I don't know and then they take off, run across the field and have forgotten it the rest of the day. Uh-huh. I mean, it's certainly more comfortable than putting in devices in your mouth or putting a helmet on oh, yeah. or shoulder pads or all of those things are incredibly, incredibly obtrusive compared to this minimal amount of pressure it, in and around the neck. And again, I, I looked, it's open in the front so it doesn't it doesn't constrict your swallowing right. or talking or anything.
3: It's it basically I just looked it up. It looks like a headband that women wear in their hair, and it's just around the neck. And it's, uh, but I mean, really, it, it's nothing. It's almost like one of those earbud thing uh, collars that you wear to hold your earbuds. It's it's non intrusive. It really is. And it honestly, it would be easier to get that collar for my child than to go fit a mouth guard. I mean, it's oh, absolutely. just put the.
2: And, Except that it. It is fit exactly yeah. to your neck size. I mean, the one downfall, if you want to call it that, is, is you're not going to be able to just pull any collar or any right. headband uh, and slap it around your neck. It is very precisely sized, and inside of it is this massively cool memory metal that no matter how many times you open it and close it, it always comes back to the same exact amount of compression.
3: Could it be? I guess I guess we're finding out, though, Dr. Smith, that it's it could be this simple. I mean we you could cure something I, the whole I was thinking man the NFL is ruined cuz we're not going to have our kids play football if they're going to keep getting concussions and but now all of a sudden it's a collar and and basically well, mimicking you, I was fearf- woodpeckers yeah I
2: was fearful of the same thing but uh, last year my uh youngest son was a senior in high school and wanted to switch from soccer over to football I was actually okay with it so long as he wore the collar, mm-hmm. and he just did great. And, of course, he knows the science and would never walk on the field without it. So it, it really is, quote-unquote, that simple, but that, that's what makes it kind of elegant. And, again, yeah. I didn't invent anything. Matt. I just identified how God and nature did it and duplicated it.
3: How many more it's solutions funny. are there out there by just paying attention like you did, Dr. Smith? I mean, other
2: problems, well, cancers, that's how other Velcro issues. Velcro was invented. Yeah. yeah, Velcro came from a little nettle, a little thing that a burr. Mm-hmm. The inventor was walking across a field and he couldn't get it out of his sock. And the next thing you know, we have a, a you know a gangbuster Velcro. So it's called biomimetics. I am somewhat of an inventor in many other realms, but I always look to see how God and nature did it first. Uh, they've had billions of years to get it right.
3: Right. Well, and it's interesting because you can tell some of the theories that have been used is, you know, just softening the helmet, adding more cushioning to helmets, all of this te- technology for the helmet. And yet it, it was really more about the, the venous structure in the neck being able to, to keep the fluids in the brain.
2: Well, right. I mean, Greg Meyer puts it very nicely. He says, well, wait a minute, you already have a helmet. It's called a skull. Right. Why are you putting a helmet on top of a helmet? Why would you think that somehow is going to alter the fluid dynamics differently? So it. it historic, I'm not knocking helmets. I, right. they, they're very necessary and they do what they're intended and engineered to do, but they do not alter the sloshing of the fluids within the brain so their their likelihood of being able to make any appreciable, you know, dent in this problem it's, it's very small.
3: Does where do you see this going in the future, and and how long do you think it'll be before you can pass all of the uh, the U.S. standards enough to to make this just totally mainstream?
2: Well, interestingly enough, I was sitting in my home uh, reading an article about a, a a number of football players in the Canadian Football League having deafening effects to the ear. And right then, a woodpecker started smacking its head against the tree uh, the tree next to my window. And I just looked over at the woodpecker, and I said, well, you, you must be deaf. Because if these football players in one right. season have changes in their hearing, well, the woodpecker's got to be deaf. So it turns out, Googled it right there on the spot, it turns out that woodpeckers have some of the highest hearing hearing of all creatures. They actually figure out where their food is underneath the bark by listening for the bee larvae huh. burring under the bark. So obviously there was a mechanism that God put in there also, and why build two fascinating mechanisms? I immediately assumed that there must be a connection between the intracranial space and the inner ear, and it turns out there's three of them. So we set out to see whether or not my theory that we might have a device to protect hearing is accurate. So back up to Dr. Bale's lab, uh, a colonel, uh, Dr. Brian Sindelar, um, actually started doing these studies and they put blast waves into rats again and started to measure the actual number of hair cells inside the damaged ears of these little rats. And there was a 94% protection to Hmm. the ears of these little animals. Just oh, my heavens. By putting little rat collars on. So <laughs> we're moving right into the hearing space now. We really truly believe that this will also dramatically reduce
3: hearing damage as well. Boy. So there's, I mean, again, another lesson from nature. Just pay attention. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And right. thank, thank well, heavens remember, for woodpeckers. Well, think about it. Why do bats actually hang upside down inside a bat case?
3: Oh, to keep why didn't fluids in their ask? head.
2: Why do they? They actually do. Inside those bat caves, especially some of the Mexican bat caves, there are up to two million bats hanging from the ceilings inside those caves, and they
1: screech
2: in order to echolocate at sometimes 120 to 150 decibels of sound, and then you multiply that by 200 million bats. Wow! How do they protect their own ears? Right. Well,
3: hanging that, upside down.
2: Now I think we know. You that is fill up that space the energy cannot be absorbed it goes right through them
3: love it basic i mean again it's really cool well we appreciate your insight and uh man thank you the the idea that uh we can all play football again that's pretty cool you saved my kids lives david david smith is his name again you're going to what's the best way to reach you david
2: Well, I'm on staff uh, on sort of an honorary position down at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. That's probably the best way to reach out to us. Um, And Dr. Greg Meyer has um, been basically fielding most of the questions. He's the, the great science mind and trying to prove or disprove some of the aspects of this technology.
3: Great stuff. Dr. David Smith, thank you so much. All right. Helping you see the good in the world. There it is. The lessons from the woodpecker might be helping us with our brain concussions, but also hearing. Just just need to wear a collar. Get some more fluid up in the brain. Keep it up there. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Smile! Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. What happens when you allow yourself to be influenced by others? A, a breakthrough. Dr. David Smith creates uh, a breakthrough, and his, uh, his team there, Dr. Greg Meyer as well. They, they're creating a breakthrough by simply paying attention to nature to a a woodpecker, for heaven's sakes. And by allowing yourself to be influenced and to learn and to ask, just ask the basic question, how does a woodpecker do it and how does, uh, you know, a mountain goat or a uh, ram bang heads and not have concussions? And isn't it crazy? God, nature, has already created the answer if we can just allow nature to play its course? How much are we missing in our own lives, in our own world? Because we're not open to asking these questions. We we are so stuck in our way of thinking. The way to protect the brain is you wear a helmet. Hello? Sure, that's one way. There's other ways. Apparently now you can wear a, a collar that keeps fluid up in your brain. And with more fluid, the energy can... Dissipate through the brain instead of concussing and and, uh, bouncing the brain around. Plus, it's going to impact hearing. Why do bats hang upside down? I don't know. The good doctor, though, is paying attention. Do you pay attention to the people in your life? Do you pay attention to the things you don't understand? Or do you just sit and continue to think the exact same way you always think? Maybe there's a lesson here. In order, to be influ- or in order to influence people and to create real change in the world, you have to be open to being influenced. And as we just learned from some researchers, man, Mother Nature can influence you. Even the woodpecker can influence us. So keep open. Remain open. Remember, you can't you know everything. And sometimes when you're confidently sure you do, that's the problem. It keeps us from truly learning. We'll take a break. We'll be back next hour. More information, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show.
1: Call the show at
0: 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
3: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
3: I am a big uh, proponent of marriage. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the, one of the great fundamental uh, resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's, it's, it's essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams in the lower economic strata of of our society all marriages are not created equal right so if if a 19 to 24 year old person gets pregnant historically we would say you got to marry you got to marry the man marry the man that you know makes it legit now we've got a legitimate thing going on here and then all of a sudden we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull him out of the financial hole and The problem is it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic – with economic struggles. So it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. Again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or you know things happen that all of a sudden yet you're pregnant, one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one on one. What is the 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 educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? what are the uh, financial implications? What What is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's, these are all important parts of the decision. And there are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, – marriage may not always be the answer in those situations cuz again who is the father what are the what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it what is the father's support level at getting out so you know it used to make more sense and i think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture we were in a different environment where we could just say You know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in in smaller town, kind of Christian-supported cultures and environments because you had a tight-knit group maybe more around you. But in inner-city, difficult, financially strained situations, it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, And if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and and other situations, so be careful when we think about our answers from twenty thirty years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a in a marriage um, if if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist, though. And um, to think that it's the answer, it sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is... Um, you know, there's, it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that. Um, Because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? We got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing, and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the the reality is is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. (laughs) Some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction, but it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So, the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first, and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, Uh, Let's do one more and then we'll take a break. Um, Differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship just like you know uh, potential I- infections and issues in our environment are better for your Im- for your immunization for your uh, immunology your ability for your immune system to be strengthened you need a resistance right you need to have something fighting against you the same is true in our marriages whenever somebody tells me we never fight i don't think oh they're healthy i immediately think well how is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Uh, thank you. And another myth that we've got to blow up. We'll take a break, come back, continue this coaching corner, give you a few more myths about marriage that we need to uh really focus and deal with stick with us folks helping you uh love stronger this is the matt townsend show we'll be right back welcome back everybody to the matt townsend show hey um, Another little uh, myth for you as we're debunking some of the myths about uh, marriage. Um, we've kind of already talked about the fact that, uh, you know, in your marriage, kids can bring happiness, but they also can bring dissension and division. So it depends on what you're focusing on. That's one merit myth we got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex. Less sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex and they're actually having better sex as they would rate it than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are, uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier, but uh, 43% said that of the singles, um, Women who were ages between the ages of twenty five and twenty nine reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex uh, ha- having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age so that 's you know pretty interesting pretty interesting little myth debunked um, Another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's it's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, Many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big uh, division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researcher said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less – Uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Our goal is to help you love stronger. I think we accomplished it. We'll be right back. Stick with us. I'm sorry. So sorry. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. That's the music I play when uh, I need to apologize. Just play it for my whole family. They're all sitting there. <laughs> Dad's mean. I'm sorry. Your child is playing with another child while you watch from across the playground. Suddenly your child lashes out and hits their friend. What do you do? Do you demand an I'm sorry from your child? Do you apologize to the other parents? What is the best thing to do if you want to teach your children about the importance of apologies? Here to discuss it is uh, Dr. Craig Smith, who, uh, whose research focuses on children's social cognitive development and their links to social behavior. He is currently the director of the Living Lab Project at the University of Michigan. Dr. Craig Smith, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks
1: so much. It's nice to be
3: here. Talk to us about um, apologies. It, it Again, it just seems like smart business that when we hurt somebody, we, we apologize. Um, but what's the research telling us about apologies?
1: Yeah, yeah well, good question. So, um, you know, one of the things that we know from older studies with adults is that apologies can make a difference. They can, you know, lead people to feel like... Uh, happier or better after a transgression has taken place. We feel closer in a relationship that's been harmed by some kind of, um, you know, rift. Um, but one of the things we just didn't know much about was what apologies meant to kids. And at the same time, we, you know, we see, like you mentioned, kids doing things all the time that um, as they're little, that they, you know, either intentionally or unintentionally upset other people and parents then prompting apologies. And, you know, I was curious about what these, um, apologies end up meaning to kids, and so we just started by asking kids themselves like you know about situations where they saw someone get upset and either didn 't get an apology or did get an apology afterwards and It was really clear from some of the early studies that that even the youngest kids we we were interviewing, like four years of age, you know preschoolers, understood some of the basic things. Yeah. You know go along with apology that it's it can it's supposed to convey that you feel bad about what you've done they you know they saw the apologizers as feeling guilty um so they understood that and they also understood that if you get an apology um at least the way it's supposed to work they understood that you you know would feel better afterwards so um we had this sense that even little kids um had a grasp of some of the basic emotional functions of an apology which is to express remorse and to make somebody else feel better um you know and then of course you bring up the great question of um, how does it work in real life like does that really happen for kids and and what do parents do and all these complicated questions about what happens when you make or ask a kid to apologize when you compel right Um, because i think we've all seen that before um (laughs) so true you will apologize now Yeah, I mean, one of the things that actually got me interested in this whole thing is, you know, having my own kids when they were younger. I was on the playground, just like you mentioned, and saw a parent tell their kid, like, you're going to apologize right now or we're leaving the playground. And the kid, like, spits out this angry apology, and then the parent seemed satisfied, and everyone went about their business. And it was sort of (laughs) this horrifying thing. What are you teaching your kid? Like, what does an apology mean to kids, and what does this particular apology convey? So it raises a lot of really important questions. And
3: apologies, this is a... This is kind of a social interaction dynamic, right? I mean, we, apologizing is, it seems like culturally, it would be some form of reconciliation needs to be made globally, culturally, in every culture, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, it's a great great thing you bring up because in, in a lot of ways, even though like the exact details might differ and the way that apologies are exchanged, there's a lot of similarities across really diverse cultures about um, the importance of apology. Um, you know, even some people who study the role of apology in places like Japan, for example, find that um, you can even uh, see how apologies have play an important role in their justice system where apologies are taken into account um, when at every step of the way, like whether deciding whether to prosecute somebody, deciding about whether to punish somebody. So, I mean, apologies carry a lot of weight. And, yeah. you know, that can even differ across cultures how much weight. But I think, you know, one of the things I always think about is, even for me, you know, times when I've really wanted an apology, or times when it's been hard for me to say I'm sorry, and I, and I think it it conveys how important apologies can feel to us sometimes. And other times when I've heard apologies and had them be completely unsatisfying, and I think that again conveys like the the depth uh, that apologies can sort of go. And and when they fail to reach that depth, um, they can also be very uh, telling situation about how important they are to us.
4: Um, so
1: so I think, um, so one of the things that we, you know, we, we did to pursue this stuff beyond finding that kids, you know, understand some of the basics about apologies. we, We try to think about all the different functions, apologies serve. So like, you know, they could be looked at as the emotional functions, like they express that I feel bad and I want you to feel better. But, um, They can also sort of signal things. So the kids understand, for example, that someone who apologizes might be uh, nicer uh, than somebody who doesn't. And kids also seem to grasp that. Um, Even from a young age, kids view, you know, if they're given a bunch of situations in an experiment and they see some people who transgress and apologize and others who don't, they seem to view that the transgressors who apologize as kinder or nicer people. And I think this has an important implication. I mean, we haven't tested all of it yet. But I mean, if you think about, you know, if I think about my own kid doing something bad and then not apologizing, how do other people see them? Mm. Um, And one of the things that's clear from this research is even little kids see them as not not as nice as maybe someone who says, I'm sorry. And does that have uh, social repercussions for kids, right? Do we want our kids to be viewed as Uh, more negatively or more positively? And I think we'd all probably answer that more positively, right?
3: Right. And does that then create, maybe that's some of the social pressure that's also created on parents to get their kid to apologize.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it. Is One of the things we did in our most recent study where we're asking parents about, you know, prompting apologies is, you know, we asked them a bunch of reasons about why they do it, but we also asked them situations in which we might do it. And one of the funny things we did was we compared, you know, Parents themselves being sort of upset by their kids versus seeing their kids upset other people, and we asked them how likely you'd be to prompt an apology. And parents were more likely to say that they'd prompt an apology when their kids upset somebody else, as opposed to when they upset the parents themselves. Yeah. I think it goes to right to what you said: is there partly parents are trying to teach their kids about apologies, but also I think parents are trying to help their kids manage the you know their social relationships with other people. Um, they want their kids to be socially successful and knowing how to make amends um using even the kind of scripts we have when we apologize knowing how to do that i think in the eyes of parents is a, important because they want their kids to be viewed as likeable and kind people you know yeah is there a um
3: is there some complex or something for for people that don't apologize well or haven't yeah. learned to what what
1: would what would make them not just conform yeah, and apologize yeah that's a great question I mean, I, I, again, I think like part of it's funny. This is a, a funny thing that I encountered once when I was reading about apologies. Is what one person was, who's was theorizing about the importance of apologies was writing about how sometimes when we when we get an apology, we then sort of have this idea that well, maybe this person shouldn't be punished or they, they don't deserve as much punishment. They've clearly admitted they're wrong. They've apologized, and they they were writing about how. In some ways, an apology can be viewed as like sort of a self-punishment. You're, you're going through the process of admitting you did something wrong, and that can be painful to the person who did the wrong thing, right? Right. Um, and, and I think that that can be some of the, when you're asking that question, it can be almost one of the things that gets in the way, is that there's some kind of emotional discomfort in actually taking that step of admitting that you did something bad and that mm-hmm. you're sorry about it. Um, I don't. I don't think it feels comfortable for a lot of us when we're faced with having to do that, right? Yeah. Does
3: have you ever seen a tie of uh, your ability to handle that discomfort and your sense of attachment, how safe you feel in the relationship?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think. Um, well, I, that's not one I don't want to have to... Look that one up, see. Craig. Yeah, right. It's not one I've studied personally. Yeah. It's a great one. There are people who study this in adults, where they've looked at apologies in close relationships, and they do find uh, that they matter a great deal. But I don't know about like the, the level of comfort people feel. I would, I would imagine that you'd feel more comfortable opening up with someone you'd be closer to, but I don't know. It's a great yeah. question. But the one thing I think um, that is interesting is that People have written a lot about sort of what goes along with, and this is another thing I've studied with kids, too, is what goes along with a real effective apology, right? And I think that gets a little bit at what you're asking as yeah. well. So what's what's hard about apologizing? Well, it's not that hard to just say, oh, sorry, yeah. right? I mean, and we see too much of that. Um, I think what's hard is actually giving a genuine apology. And some of the components of that are you know, expressing remorse, admitting what you did, um, talking about it making a promise of some kind or another that it won't happen again, uh-huh. potentially even going beyond words in some cases where the breach was really serious and making amends in another way. Um, and I think that that's where um, it gets difficult for people, and that's uh, and those are some of the components, I think, of a more genuine apology. And we found, you know, when we ask kids about apologies that seem less genuine, that they're sensitive to some of the markers of a non-genuine apology, and they view them less charitably, you know. So I think even, again, at, at a young age, and I think this has implications for parents, even at a young age, kids are sensitive to what, at least some of the markers of a non-genuine apology, and they don't think of those apologies as being as useful or even welcome. Huh.
3: And then and then we, we guess we can talk about what that does when they, when they interpret that it wasn't a genuine apology, how that impacts the child. Let's come back and get to that. We're speaking again with Dr. Craig Smith. He is... Um, from working at the university of michigan in the living lab project there and uh the living lab is a research education model that brings development research into the community settings and uh is is teaching us today about the power and importance of apologies stick with us folks we'll take a break come back continue the discussion in just a couple minutes Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Today we are speaking um, about apologies and parents. How much pressure should we put on our children to apologize? And what really are the lessons that we should be teaching our kids about apologies? Joining us is Dr. Craig Smith. He is currently the director of the Living Lab Project at the University of Michigan, and his research focuses on children's social cognitive development and links to social behavior. Dr. Craig Smith, thank you so much for being with us today. No, thank you. Love uh, this information about apologies. You wrote a wonderful article in The Conversation about mm. parents apolo- or, uh, asking their children for apologies. I guess it's, there, there's something um, that's, I guess, redeeming. Apologies are important. They're necessary So necessary uh, tools, I guess, of our socialization, but they also have a, a side where they could be misinterpreted as not genuine or yeah. interpreted correctly as not genuine. What's the impact of a non-genuine apology
1: on our children? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the ways that um, we played around with this with kids, like, you know, there's so many ways that an apology could be looked at it as non-genuine, I mean, and, and some of that might be hard to pick up on for little kids, you know, like just the the facial expression that goes along with it that we may be more sensitive to as an adult. But one thing, you know, that like we were talking about that we often see is a parent just saying, say, you're sorry. <laughs> and, and we wonder, like, does even that convey, you know, the kid who gets that prompted apology, does that convey to them that the the apologizer didn't really mean it because they got told to say it, right? Right. Um, and does that have some kind of negative impact? And so we were asking kids about that in one of our studies and and we found that little kids actually don't view prompted apologies that negatively. Like if, if you know my kid is tearing open a present and uh, they forget to say thank you because they're so excited. And they're little, and I say, "Oh, say thank you," and they say, "Thanks." You know, that's often, I think, something we're accepting of. You know, we view yeah. that as the kid forgotten. They're now expressing genuine thanks, and that's almost like how little kids viewed prompted apologies, where they said, "You know, person probably still feels bad, and the person who got the apology might feel better." But we also played around with this thing that we often see parents do, where they push their kid to say, you know, say, I'm sorry. And the kid resists a little and then says it. Yeah. Um, and that's where kids really saw that um, being different. Kids viewed um, these apologies that were prompted but came with a little bit of resistance or fussiness as um, less genuine. And they also, importantly, didn't see the victim who got the apologies feeling any better afterwards huh. um, and so I think that this is really important for parents to think about because we, in our study with parents, we found that a lot of parents do prompt apologies from their kids. But I think the idea is like, when do you do it and why do you do it? And and first of all, when, I mean, I think intuitively we could all imagine that if your kid's already upset or seeming angry, they're probably not going to deliver a genuine apology if you ask them to do so. So maybe waiting, uh, maybe letting them cool down, talking to them about what happened, and and maybe even finding another way for them to make amends besides just saying the words. Um, there's plenty of other research that shows that kids can, you know, be made to feel better, not even with an apology, but even having somebody make amends by helping rebuild a, you know, a, a tower that got knocked over if, you know, somebody kicked your block tower over and then helps you rebuild it. That can help you feel better, too. You don't need the apology. Um, so I think that's one thing. It's like when do we ask our kids to say I'm sorry? And But the other thing is, you know, um, why And parents often talked about um, wanting to teach their kids lessons about how to help other people feel better and uh, help them reflect on some of the moral implications of you know, what they've done if they've hurt somebody else. And apology prompting can help with that. But again, if you're doing it, if you're trying to teach those lessons, just picking your moments is important. It's so true. And
3: I, I guess there's the – you don't want to taint apologies for the rest of your child's yeah. life.
1: I think that's a great point. I mean, like if, and I think one of the things we did find, um, is that, um, you know, this, this real important thing, parents were, you know, focused on wanting their kids to understand how to help other people feel better and understand moral situations. So if that's the motivation, um, you know you you might imagine like really feeling urgent about that but i think parents need to realize that there's plenty of these situations that pop up in life and there's no need to like have any one situation be rushed um like it, again like because it's not going to help the kid who's been upset feel better if your kid delivers a non-genuine fussy apology so you're not really doing anything good for the victim and and at the same time you might you're probably not conveying the things you want to convey about apology to your own kid when you're pushing it that way um, so I, I agree. Yeah. You, so you don't want to paint that, paint that for kids as they get older. You want that, you want to teach skills about how to, I think, deliver a genuine apology that comes along with, you know, an acknowledgement of what was done and, you know, a, an assurance that, you know, I'll try to be more careful in the future and I'm sorry. And, and even maybe again, like I said, if it's a more serious thing, making of amends.
3: Hmm. Does, does it, uh, do you see anything in the research about? Maybe some parents that are kind of right on top of the apology, pushing it very quickly to make it happen, versus those that are maybe more permissive. What does that do to the child long-term?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So there are, of course, like a wide range of, even in any particular culture, the ways that parents um, approach parenting. Um, And one of the ways that it's been studied a lot is just the level of... Um, warmth and also level of demandingness or firmness. Um, So there's some parents that are super warm and fuzzy with their kids, which is great, um, but they're also sort of um, less demanding, and they don't expect mature behavior from their kids. Um, These are parents we call permissive parents, and they tended to be less likely than other parents to prompt apologies. Um, And, you know, there's no sense... And from our research of what that means for kids down the road, but there are other studies that just look at these parenting dimensions and find that kids with overly permissive parents tend to be more likely to have certain behavior problems down the road. They Mm -hmm. tend to be less able to regulate their behavior in mature ways. And of course, there's the flip side. There are parents that are not very warm and incredibly demanding and firm, and those kids also tend to be more likely to have behavior problems down the road. And it doesn't mean all the kids do, but just on average. And then there's these parents that are combining warmth and and responsivity with firmness and and expectations of mature behavior. And those kids tend, on average, to fare very well, um, because they're getting both the sense that I'm cared for and uh, I'm adored, and I'm also... um, you know, in a in a situation where I'm expected to behave myself and um, look after other people as well, and those parents, of course, were some of the ones that were indicating that they did indeed consider apologies to be important for their kids.
3: Hmm. It's it's interesting. There's so many styles, and almost uh, it seems like it depends as a parent if you're coming at the apology out of fear,
1: out of yeah. embarrassment, or out of yeah. true
3: sincere, yeah, you know, remorse.
1: It's a great point. I mean, I think, I don't know, as a parent, I, I can at least relate to it on a personal level. Having my kid even make a mistake and upset somebody else, what in that moment am I worried about? Like, am I worried about, you know, my kid learning something important and making sure the other kid involved also feels better? Or am I worried about managing the impression of other people have me have of me as a parent? Like, you know, and I think, I think that we often struggle with that as parents, wanting to seem like good parents in the eyes of others. Um, and that's a hard thing. You know, it's not something that you can just dismiss easily. But I think in the moment, it's just good to be aware of it and realize, like, what's my priority? And my priority's the kids right now and not necessarily, like, needing to make sure by pushing my kid to apologize when not ready that I seem like a good parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also important to remember you might not seem like a good parent if you're doing that either. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all these things are tricky to balance in the moment.
3: What, in the end, is the long-term impact on our children um, by teaching them kind of the genuine, sincere apology yeah. approach? What impact will it make on their lives 20 years from now, 30 years from now?
1: That's a really cool question. And, and, like, this is the kind of thing that I think we'd love to be able to study, and we just don't know right now. And, of course, there's so many other things that go along with development that it might even be hard to isolate the apology piece of it. But I, I, think, I think more generally, if you look across studies, like across studies with kids and, and all the way through studies of adults and apology, one thing you can see a thread of is that apologies do matter. Like kids are sensitive to the importance of them and adults are also reporting in some studies that um, th- when they've had conflicts in relationships that apologies have helped. Um, so I think one of the things we see about apologies is they seem like these basic words. Um, I'm sorry, it can almost seem like this script that you know, it's hard to imagine carries a lot of power, but if delivered in a genuine way and, you know, with some of these other elements, like, you know, acknowledgement of what happened and what went wrong, um, I think what we're teaching our kids is ways to effectively manage and mend um, rifts and relationships. And and it, it starts mattering for kids early on, and it seems to matter for adults, too. So I think, you know, the better that we can teach how to how to apologize in a genuine fashion? Uh, the 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 more we give kids sort of tools to manage the kind of things that pop up in relationships all throughout our lives.
3: I mean, and when you think about what skills could be more important than long term relationship sustaining skills?
1: Yeah, because C- yeah. relationships
3: Absolutely. are going to you're going to struggle, you're going to offend people, you will hurt people in your relationships, but you all you need to recover.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, I, I, one of the things that we haven't really studied yet, too, is just, you know, I think adults, adults, we often struggle to deliver those apologies in, in effective ways. Um, there are books for adults. And there's a great one called On Apology. I, it's a wonderful short read um, that I'd recommend and talks about all the elements of apologies and how they're tricky to deliver at times. And I think even just thinking about the fact that we often, without thinking about it, are modeling apologies for kids, they're watching us um, when we're interacting with others in our relationships. And so, yeah, uh, there's a lot of ways we teach kids about apologies indirectly as well. And, and as you note, know, it can be an incredibly important tool. And we often, as adults, even still struggle to use it effectively. Oh,
3: yeah. and And, and if we use it ineffectively, eventually some people won't trust it. Oh, yeah. Right. Dad's just saying that, but he never <laughs> changes. Um, yeah. But also, we we don't model the right way to do it. So if you were going to teach us how to prompt our child to effectively apologize in a moment, I guess the first thing would be to check, is this the right
1: moment yeah. to yeah, do absolutely. this? Yeah, and, right.
3: and, so, and then what?
1: Yeah. So absolutely, is the kid sort of calm and ready to reflect on somebody else's perspective? And, you know, because part of a real apology is just being able to take the perspective of another person say, yeah. you know, they've been upset in some way. Um, and if they can do that, um, first of all, just making sure that it's not just words for the kid, that they're acknowledging that somebody else has been upset and making sure that they understand that an uh, apology is a one way that you can help that person feel better, letting them know that you saw, what, you saw what you did was upsetting to the other person and you feel bad about it. I think those are the key elements. And then, you know, what we know from some studies is that if, if the transgression was really bad, like it was really bad, um, you might also find another way to help your child not only say those words and say them in a genuine, heartfelt way, but to, to do something to make up for what was done. Like, I, you know, for example, if you know, I would use this example in preschool. For example, if you went over and kicked someone's block tower down, like saying you're sorry and really meaning it might go some way towards making that person feel better, but getting down there and helping them clean up what happened also would probably be a huge thing in that situation as well. So I think, um, you know, those kind of things are great to pay attention to. And I don't think we need to like make it too complicated for kids, but it's sort of the idea of making sure that they understand how other people are feeling, like that they're reflecting on it, mm-hmm. that, um, that they're saying the words in a heartfelt way. Um, and they're not just saying them because you made them say them, right. those kind of things.
3: Yeah, and even I guess asking questions, like t- really, it's like you said, it's taking the place of other, and g- if you can get your child to feel a little bit of what the other was feeling, yeah, then that's that's one of the most I guess humanizing and r- relationship enhancing skills we could own.
1: It's really true, and and to be honest, like you know, I think there's so many words we could use, like the word the exact words I'm sorry probably aren't the most important thing in there, although we use those words a lot and they do convey very quickly our meaning but you know the idea that like we can even just say to someone i'm sorry you know instead of saying i'm sorry you can say i see that i upset you or um i feel bad about that um how are you doing now you know these kind of things i think that's sort of what we're trying to teach our kids is just to put themselves in somebody else's shoes and understand what happened and then to make some kind of statement about how you feel about that yeah. and yeah That's powerful. Dr.
3: Craig Smith, thank you so much for your insight on apologizing. Yeah, it was fun talking with you today. You too. We'll uh, have you back. Dr. Craig Smith, again, you can find out more about him. Just Google Dr. Craig Smith and the Living Lab Project at the University of Michigan apologizing. We'll take a break, come back, do a little Coach's Corner, giving you more tools, more information to help you live healthier, happier relationships. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Jane MacDonald was an upstanding, law-abiding citizen with a 757 credit score, an affinity for opera, and no history of violence. Then one day,
1: something changed all that forever. He had never broken a rule in his life. Now he's breaking into prison. But in order to break into the most secure prison in the world, He'll have to remember
3: that a successful break-in depends on three things. Knowing the layout,
4: understanding the routine, and help from outside array. Put your hands in the air now! Showtime.
3: Since he doesn't own a gun, he'll have to rely on his brains... You don't look that
4: smart. ...and brawn. I need a diversion. Okay you hit like a vegetarian. It was good. What's
3: If you thought breaking out was hard,
1: try breaking in. Break in. The guy who broke into prison.
3: Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, I'm going to see that break-in movie. Ugh! Good trailers, good trailers. So here's the deal, parents. Think about how much of our parenting is actually done in an effort to protect our own ego. Not even to protect our children, but just so that we don't look bad. And what are we telling our children when we're saying, you better apologize. That's embarrassing. You're humiliating me. It's. Again, if we're going to try to create a long-term relationship and and set our kids up for success, we need to figure out how to get ourselves out of the way. Um, I'll I'll never forget the – my lesson Stephen Covey taught about our egos being part of our parenting and we can't allow ourselves to to have our ego – be the reason we are doing anything. My ego should not go up and be inflated because my child is the quarterback on a team. My ego should not be um, stroked simply because my daughter is uh, the student body president. It shouldn't. I shouldn't feel so much better about myself because my kids do what they're supposed to do, and I shouldn't feel horrible about myself because my kids don't do what they should be doing. If my ego is connected to my children's success, we are setting ourselves up for a failure because then my children's choices, my child's agency is going to be um, really able to impact my sense of identity. Wouldn't it make more sense that instead of having my my child's success build my identity, wouldn't it make more sense that I just have principles that make me feel more peaceful, more strong? Principles like apologizing. Principles like patience. Principles like uh, choice and principles like agency and the ability to show integrity and be loyal to people and to you know exercise character. What if my confidence came from those principles, not whether my child apologized on the playground or not? So think that through. Where is it that you get the ideas that you get in order to parent? And is it coming from your ego? And how much of your ego are we going to let impact? The dilemma you you will face, every one of us faces – Is if my child, if my self-worth and self-esteem come from what my child is doing, then what happens when they're not doing what I want them to do? (laughs) Then do I lose my self-worth? But instead, if my self-worth and my identity as a parent comes from the fact that I'm teaching principles, I'm doing everything I can to teach the principles effectively, if they still choose not to do it, I still have the principles, right? I still know that I've been patient and doing everything I can. Um, It doesn't mean I won't be sad if they mess up, but it will mean that I have my principles. Think about it. Just all of us. Parenting 101. What are you basing your decisions on? I'd suggest principles while we're at it. We'll take a break. It's hour number two of the program. Stick with us, folks, helping you live longer, love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side. Follow
0: Dr. Matt on Twitter. At
2: Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
2: This is the Matt
3: Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend.
3: Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We've been talking about the impact of the internet on your brain. Does it make it all mushy? No. Unless you're a Kardashian. No, it doesn't. Come on. But again, folks, we got to learn to be a, a media critic, right? We got to know what's what's real, what's not. Who we should trust? We cannot equate a media personality to a, a you know, a strong source of knowledge about any topic really, right? Wouldn't you rather have a researcher? Wouldn't you really rather have somebody that's studied it that maybe doesn't have a, that's maybe not making money to be a pitch person? It's hard. It's, it's really hard to, to know who to trust and what to trust. And, you know, there's, that's our responsibility as parents, is we can step in and start to create just conversations, more and more conversations. And uh, what I'm finding with my family is it doesn't, you don't have to make this a big formal thing. It's just constant. Keep bringing it up every time you get a chance, every time you see a story on the news, use the story as a catalyst to talk. These discussions, one by one, Your kids are listening. They're hearing it. They know what's going on. When you see that, do you really think that's happening? That's, do you think that that person really uses that? Do you think they really look like that? Anyway, a lot of this is just, it's hard. I mean, parenting's hard enough. Now, all of a sudden, I've got got my children looking at a screen eight, nine hours a day. That's not even including television, right? That's just computers, cell phones, iPads, seven to eight, nine hours a day. Ah, boy. At least they're going to school. No, they're not, actually. 24,152 students played hooky the day the Broncos uh, had their parade. Denver Public Schools, you know, were pretty vacant, More than a quarter of enrolled students missed school in Denver last week when the city celebrated the Denver Broncos Super Bowl parade. Denver Public Schools released numbers saying uh, that 24,152 students had had an excused or unexcused absence from one class period or more on Tuesday. That's 26% of the 90,200-plus students. Principals dealt with a flood of voicemails from parents calling to excuse their children. But late in the morning, schools also saw a stream of parents going to school to pick up their students. Yeah, sure. 74% of the parents kept their kids in school. You know, I would have gone if I had a chance. My favorite day in school was when it would snow. Snow day! Oh, that's where I really gained my faith in life, that I could pray for a miracle. And one out of ten times it happened. We didn't have to go to school. Hey, uh, check out this crazy um, uh, Bad Boys segment. Investigators say they believe they've identified a man wanted in connection with a theft of more than $1,500 in chewing gum. Regional police say a man took the gum from a pharmacy north of Toronto in December. Investigators say the man went to the drugstore on the evening of December 17th. And video surveillance shows he went uh, to the candy aisle, filled a garbage bag with gum and left (laughs) wow a few moments later he re-entered the store filled another garbage bag with chewing gum and walked out again police say they believe he loaded both garbage bags containing chewy gum worth $1528 into a waiting taxi and they drove away
1: I'm pretty sure I know how you'd catch him how? or identify him
3: how would you identify him?
1: the sound that's not gum
3: I'm pretty sure it is. It's like that um, Big League Scum, like the stuff. Yeah, like... he's got a lot of it, apparently. Yeah. There's a lot of people that can't hear, the, they can't listen to the sound because it makes them cringe.
1: Yeah, our, our listenership drops by 50%. Every time. Yeah. I love it
3: because it reminds me of you, Ben.
1: I know. It's it's, it's like Ben just had breakfast. It's like our moment when <laughs> I started eating my granola bar.
3: <laughs> <laughs> You're, yeah, or anything, really. Yeah. You just got a lot of saliva in there. Generally, the wet stuff is what brings it out the most. But Playing hooky and chewing gum. thats a, It's a life made for children. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, one of the biggest victims of this new age of information and uh, technology is going to be the relationship, right? And as a relationship coach, uh, I do believe it's something we need to pay close attention to. So it will be today's topic of the coaches' corner. How do we how do we close the closeness gap? Many people are struggling, um, feeling close to another person. They they, they feel lonely, personally, and uh, you know, interpersonally, they feel like they just aren't close to their partner, to their kids. Um, it's hard when everyone's sitting looking at their phones and no one's connecting and talking, you might start to feel like you don't matter, that you are irrelevant. And um, there's it is a plague, quite honestly. And and yet it's something that we can fix. But like our good guest Andrew Merle was just saying, you might need to make some choices, like the choice to put the phone away. And that's, that's easier said, and I say it, and every time I say it, I notice that I, I still have a hard time putting my phone away because the phone makes it so I don't need to be vulnerable. I don't need to talk to anybody. I'm tired. Just once I pull it out, everyone kind of leaves me alone. But some of that then fosters this sense of loneliness. And uh, one of the things – there's a great book out there that I would highly recommend um, uh, called Stop Being Lonely and it's um uh, the kira, kira somebody let me find, look up her name but it's in, in the book um one of the ideas behind the concept of stop being lonely is what we really need to do is start to feel more um more of an ability to get to understand the people around us we really have to kind of step in and get uh, to understand who we are married to, who we are living with. Uh, Kira Asatryan is the author of the book "Stop Being Lonely: Three Simple Steps to Developing Close Relationships and Deep or Close Friendships and Deep Relationships." But one of the interesting things she teaches is uh, don't just assume you understand the person you're with. And I did this yesterday with a, with a couple where i had them identify on a list of positive traits and negative traits um what are their top you know eight you know positive ways that they see themselves and what are some of the negative ways they see themselves that that they in their in their head in their heart of hearts they really they feel this way uh they they and and basically this couple had been arguing about a situation and um we did this activity, and then I had them turn to each other and talk about what they found. One person's uh, one of his top traits was loyalty, another person's top trait. The female's top trait was um, just just uh, com- compassion and um you know and and just a sense of compassion for others. And what ends up happening is uh the the male's negative trait was stubbornness, and the female's negative trait was confusion. So what ends up happening in their relationship is a lot of times the, the wife is compassionately serving her children while the husband is lonely and loyal and wondering why she isn't more loyal to him. And then they fight. And it, what was amazing is, is I had them start identifying how they both see themselves and how their partner sees themselves. It changes the entire discussion. He's not being stubborn because he hates her. He's being stubborn because that's just his weakness. And she doesn't get confused about not loving him or loving the kids. I mean that confusion is not coming because she doesn't love him. It's coming because she's so compassionate. She's going to always take care of the one that's in the need. Well, then he has to create a need for her to be able to be compassionate. The power of if you want to be um, more connected to others is you've got to understand where they're coming from from their frame of reference. If they're trying to do something and they want loyalty, you need to understand that. If they want more compassion, you need to understand that. Understanding somebody is the antidote to creating a closer relationship. So a little challenge for you. Put down the phones. Go try to understand each other. Make sense? We'll take a break. We'll be back for more of The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we try to pack more and more into each day today, don't we? Technology can interfere with sleep and the stresses of work and family keep us up at night. All are ingredients that can lead to exhaustion. We look to the past, imagining that life, uh, you know, was once much simpler, slower, slower. But extreme mental and physical stress is not a modern syndrome. Today's guest, Dr. Anna Katharina Schaefer, a reader in comparative literature and medical humanities at the University of Kent in England, shares her research with us from her book *Exhaustion: A History*. Dr. Schaefer, welcome so much. Uh, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, and thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you
4: very much for having me on the
3: show. So, exhaustion—not a—not a modern. Uh, Not not just something new to the modern life. Apparently, exhaustion has a very, very, very long history.
4: Exactly. Um, I was really intrigued a couple of years ago when I noticed that a lot of articles were being produced, a lot of talk um, happened about burnout stress. And most researchers, um, both academic and in popular media, always seem to think of our age as the most exhausting and the most exhausted age ever. And that was really something I kept um, coming across again and again. And I was very intrigued by this conception of our own crisis as the most dramatic and the most preeminent one Ever. And I just wondered whether that could be true. And of course, you know, um, most people who talk about stress and burnout and various other exhaustion syndromes, they talk about technology and how new technologies such as um, the Internet and mobile phones and so on, they have led to us being ever more unable to switch off. Um, and therefore, they blame those new technologies on, on an erosion of the work life um, boundaries, and they argue that those kind of boundaries have become ever more porous because of these new technologies and A lot of um, researchers also talked about how neoliberal capitalist competition was getting ever fiercer and mm. More inhumane, causing people lots of stress in their work life, um, and therefore a lot of researchers talk about this you know relentless twenty four seven culture that has turned us into the most exhausted people in history ever. (laughs) And I was really intrigued and wondered, can that really be the case? And I looked at um, older records, medical ones, theological ones, um, psychological ones, psychoanalytical ones, um, and I was really, really surprised to find that exhaustion has actually been a topic that was of interest in every historical period. Not only was it of interest, but most historical most people in those different periods also thought of their age as the most exhausting age and they also presented their own crises as the most dramatic ones out there and they always looked back to um, a past that was imagined as as much more calm, less stressful, you know, where people lived more wholesome lives in (laughs) harmony with nature. So that too was something that um, recurred again and again in my research. Um, And exhaustion, I think the causes of exhaustion that people talk about, they vary greatly um, throughout history, but what remains constant is an anxiety about exhaustion. So I think there is this underlying fear that um, exhaustion may do social harm, it may do harm to the individual, and um, anxieties about exhaustion really can be traced back all the way to the age of classical antiquity.
3: Wow. I mean, it, it makes sense, right? You, your body would create anxiety at the idea that you're burning yourself out. It just seems natural. Yeah, absolutely.
4: So, and it, I think it's also considered to be a social problem. And, and that too became very clear in, in those historical records because the exhausted um, tend to not work and they tend not to be productive and they can cause um, social frictions in some cases. And so exhaustion was always considered um, an issue that wasn't just a well-being issue, but that also affected society um, in, a, in a sort of more... General, broader sense. Um, and, you know, burnout is actually an economical problem because a lot of people who take sick leave, you know, tend to not be productive. And, um, and therefore, uh, in various countries, uh, burnout research is sponsored by the state because the state has an interest in, in having productive workers. Um, a a healthy uh, workforce that that can keep being productive. Um, So it's not just a well-being issue but also a wider social and economic issue. Um, But what I found uh, really interesting was that I think exhaustion also hooks into some dark psychological fears about aging and death and you know the waning of our engagement and that tends to be a psychological constant throughout the ages. But what differs greatly is the kind of stories um, people people talk people um, people people constructed about exhaustion and its causes, and the causes what we blame the causes for which we blame our exhaustion they vary greatly huh. and at the moment they 're mainly you know technological changes, but in history they they differ enormously, and exhaustion was co- blamed on all sorts of different phenomena
3: talk about that what what uh... I guess every every era would have a different maybe cause of exhaustion. What, what were some of the historical sources of exhaustion?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think exhaustion is also a really, really interesting topic because I'm interested in the kind of exhaustion that isn't just physical exhaustion. Right. You know, that is the result of hard physical labor or hard days' work or running a marathon. I'm interested in the kind of exhaustion that is, um, very difficult to locate that is somewhere between mental and physical and social and spiritual. Um, And that kind of exhaustion, too, has existed um, throughout the ages. So people weren't just exhausted in the past because they had to work harder, but they also suffered from that kind of exhaustion that is the result of of brain work um, or of psychosocial stresses. And um, that kind of exhaustion has been blamed on, for example, in the period of classical antiquity, the humour theory paradigm was was very very popular, where well, was in fact the, the big medical theory, and that remained the case until modern medicine um, uh, came along um, as late as the sort of eighteenth and nineteenth century. Um, But humor theory is all about a balance between four different bodily humors. And if one of those humors um, is present excessively or is deficient, then then an individual's health, both mental and physical, can be affected. So in the age of classical antiquity, exhaustion was blamed on a surplus of black bile. Mm. Um, And people back then believed that... Black bile would be, if it was present in an excessive amount in the body, would be burned and would literally rise up um, into the sufferer's brain and then cloud their judgment and make them see everything through a glass darkly. So it was a physical wow. phenomenon, um, but, but it had mental effects. Yeah. Um, and other causes of exhaustion were thought to be in the in the um, Renaissance period. For example, there was a scholar who was very interested in the exhaustion of scholars, and he believed in astronomy and astrology and um, various alchemical cures. And he believed that our exhaustion was caused by living in disharmony with the planets. So hmm. he, he found it he, he found it extremely difficult that we uh, he basically his cure was. Um, that we have to align our rhythms with the planets that are responsible for our energy resources. Um, and he recommended as cures for, the, for exhaustion, um, amongst other things, orphic dancing, which is all about aligning your own body with the movements of the celestial bodies above <laughs> you. That's one of the most esoteric cures out there. Interesting. Um, but other people believed in. Um, in technological changes, they feature quite centrally, but, but it's not only about technology. I would say that c- quite regularly people blamed change of any kind for causing exhaustion. So that could be technological change, but that can also entail social changes. So in the 19th century, for example, um, people suffered from um, a diagnosis that was called neurasthenia, um, and uh, neurasthenia also entailed um, severe physical and mental exhaustion, but also a host of other symptoms. Um, it was invented in the United States by a physician called um, George M. Beard, and it was structured around the idea of a lack of nerve force. And Beard and various other people who embraced that diagnosis thought of um, neurasthenia as being caused by uh, overstimulation, constant cognitive overstimulation, and be it, for example, blamed um, neurasthenia on on steam power, artificial lighting, hmm. um, the telegraph, and also the education of women. So another interesting constant is that um, theorists tend to identify. Very specific technological or social changes, often changes with, with with which they disagree, and then they try to pathologize them and uh, present them as as being the you know causes of a specific kind of exhaustion.
3: Oh, how interesting! Yeah, and that, then they can they could throw anything. We could say today's exhaustion is caused by Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton.
4: Yes, <laughs> absolutely.
3: Oh my uh, yeah. heavens! It's um, interesting that it was. It's such a it's such a universal experience, right? Apparently, all the way back in time, they've been trying to explain what's the cause of this exhaustion.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, And what I find also really fascinating is how, you know, these kind of theories about exhaustion, they can tell us quite a lot about different historical periods and, you know, values that were prevalent at those moments and concerns and anxieties, because exhaustion is something that is, very hard to measure. It's a subjective experience. Um, It's an experience that entails physical symptoms such as fatigue, weakness, and lethargy, but also mental symptoms such as weariness, disillusionment, hopelessness, lack of engagement, um, cognitive impairment, and so on. Um, But what is very, very interesting is the ways in which um, theorists, theorists, Divide up their their factors between um, physical ones and mental ones mm. and social ones. So in some periods, uh, the the medical or theological um, theorists of exhaustion blamed everything on on physical causes, on you know bodily developments. Yeah, their body. And in other periods, they would privilege the psychological, and they mm. would talk about you know the mind and its power over the body. Um, so you get very very different. Different theoretical models of exhaustion. You know, I, Freud, for example, oh, it, believed that obviously everything was um, was caused by you know inner psychological and outer psychological conflicts. Um, whereas some other biomedical researchers nowadays would say it's all about you know um, biochemical processes in the brain. Yeah,
3: Doctor Anna, uh, let's take a break. We got to come back, um, but I want to continue this discussion and figure out what we what i guess what we've learned and where we can go forward with it in understanding our own exhaustion today again dr anna katharina schaffner uh the author of the book exhaustion a history unbelievable folks don't think you're that special this has been going on forever exhaustion and the human being stick with us the matt townsend show we'll be right back Matt Townsend Show. We are talking about exhaustion today. It's, uh, you would think, in this day of technology, the blue light that keeps you awake, all of these advancements, it's just, uh, it's harder to not be exhausted with all of the things going on in our world, except when you talk to the experts uh, like our guest, Dr. Anna Katharina Schaffner, she's the author of the book Exhaustion: A History. She's been detailing and and talking to us today about the fact that this goes this goes back and back and back. Every generation, it seems like, has uh, been arguing for their own exhaustion, and how, however to, however they manifest it through fatigue, lethargy, you know, just complete depression, <laughs> anxieties it's it's something that every generation seems to feel. Uh Dr. Schaefer, thank you so much for being with us and teaching us this.
4: Yes, it's a pleasure to
3: to talk to you. Talk to us about um I guess as we think about it, it the physical realm you were talking about, they've always kind of tried to identify it either through a physical manifestation, a mental and psychological manifestation, or a social reality that uh, that's and how it's impacting us, is, I, I guess, that, what does this teach us just about humans, that that we do tire, we do get exhausted, and we want to find meaning in our exhaustion? We want to find causes? Yeah, I think
4: absolutely. I think, you know, the kind of stories we tell ourselves about our own exhaustion matter enormously, um, not just the stories, even the metaphors we use to, you know, to, to visualize our what is happening inside our bodies really matters. So, you know, one of the metaphors that a lot of uh, writers about exhaustion use is the idea of the empty battery, you know, or the body as a worn-out machine that gets ever more tired the more often you use it. Um, But there were also much more interesting metaphors in use, such as, you know, in the Middle Ages, exhaustion was theorized in the context of acedia, which is the theological version of melancholia. And acedia was thought to be sinful behavior. It was thought to be um, caused by a lack of proper faith and weak willpower and so on. <laughs> so the ascetic um, monks, you know, it was mainly a condition that affected monks. Ascetic wo- monks were, were thought to be grave sinners, and Ascedia was in fact a forerunner of sloth, which was one of the deadly seven sins. Um, and in, in that period, um, the ascetic exhausted person was... Uh, compared to a body, um, their body was compared to a tepid bowl of milk on which flies settle. You know, <laughs> the idea that they were too weak to to and and slightly rotten, <laughs> and they were too weak to fight off the flies. You know, wow. that, that would cause. Exhaustion and nowadays, I think we, you know, the image of of the brain as a computer is is very very powerful and and much used. So we often tend to think of our of our heads as overloaded computer programs. And these images really matter because I think they shape what is happening um, inside us to a certain extent. They shape our experiences mm-hmm. and our understanding of our own exhaustion.
3: Because if your exhaustion um, is a sin, that's boy, that would induce more exhaustion, more guilt, more... Yes,
4: absolutely. I think, I think you know, uh, on top of feeling um, very, very exhausted, those monks um, back then were, were, would also probably feel very guilty about yeah. um, having given in to the temptation of, you know, the noonday demon, which was thought to, to be one of the causes of exhaustion. Someone who tempted them into, you know, sleepiness and drowsiness and, and general weakness. Um, so yeah, I think what, what, what is very interesting is also the you know these models. They they basically determine how we think of the exhausted. You know, are they responsible for their exhaustion or are they victims of something that's happening in their bodies over which they have no control? Um, do, is it certain behaviours? Do they work too hard? Do they play too hard? You know, do they yeah. indulge in excessive sexual activities? Do they? eat a, a wrong diet. You know? um, I think willpower and responsibility and agency really matter in those, different, um, in those different models as well. And if you think about burnout nowadays, in burnout the blame is very much on the system, you know. Right. It's very much on the working environment which victimizes um, the, the employee.
3: Oh, that's and I mean, I guess so. The framing of this matters, and there were times where exhaustion was a—it seems like a sign of honor, a badge of courage, because yeah, you were yeah, doing it's so that's much.
4: Really interesting um, staple throughout history that exhaustion tends to be associated with positive qualities, with the one big exception being the Middle Ages, where it was thought of as a sin. But in most other periods, um, the exhausted were somehow exceptional individuals. You know, they were um, the melancholics. They were often scholars or creative types, artists, um, brain workers. And, you know, the brain worker connection um, remains stable throughout the centuries, really. And the exhausted are often thought to be people who are exceptionally sensitive, exceptionally hardworking, exceptionally caring, perfectionists. And if you think about people who say, I'm so stressed or I'm burned out nowadays, that too comes with slightly positive connotations because that means they're very much in demand. Um, It means they have a very full life. They're very popular. You know, work can't happen without them. Um, And again, you know, a burnout diagnosis, I would say, is, it's even now less stigmatized than than a depression diagnosis
3: it's uh it really is interesting as I because I've, I've heard so many different approaches to burnout and I feel it I feel it in my own life like I'm being pulled five or ten different ways and then I also look at my life as so fulfilled it's so fulfilling. I feel so um, connected and kind of in a in flow. However, it's it, also, it seems like there's this universal experience of humanity um, where we're tired and we wear out. And then I think what you bring up, and maybe this is your literary background, the story we tell about why we're tired determines so much of how we handle it, how we move forward with it.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, exhaustion is really something that all of us experience. Um, Some of us uh, in a a very serious um, pathological form that can be very debilitating. Others in a way that can be, you know, that isn't very, very um, dramatic and that can be overcome again. But, you know, what, what you describe is also very typical. Certain certain stressful scenarios can also be energizing. You know, stress right. is not necessarily always bad. Um, exhaustion can also be caused by understimulation and boredom, interestingly. Mm. So it's not just cognitive overload or it's not just a very, very full life that can cause that exhaustion. It, it, exhaustion can really be caused by all sorts of things. And again, I think what is really important is, is balance, uh, keeping a sense of balance. Um, and I think we can learn a lot from, from Eastern cultures, which, you know, which have a much more um, clearly defined concept of human energy and they have many more strategies in place to, uh, to foster and to enhance their energy levels. So a lot of relaxation techniques and a lot of, you know, energy recu- recuperation strategies are actually um, from Eastern cultures where, where they take energy and you know and the care of care of human energy i think much more seriously mm-hmm. than we do yeah
3: and if if you had to kind of wrap up your uh your message and and really i always call it the one thing anna what's the one thing we all need to know about exhaustion uh, going forward
4: yeah i would say you are not alone. <laughs> yeah. We are not alone in feeling exhausted. Um, and, and it has really been a universal anxiety that can be traced throughout history all the way back to classical antiquity. And I think that's reassuring because that somehow makes our own suffering a little bit less special and a little bit less concerning. I think mm. each period um, has to face its own Demons and its own unique stressors. and um, and they are of course unique, but um, every period has dealt with its own share of, of stressful circumstances. Yeah. And I think there are there's a lot to learn from history. Yeah.
3: Absolutely. No, and I think that's the that's such the the point. I think, and uh, we appreciate your insight, Dr. Anna Katharina Schaffner, Again, the book is Exhaustion: A History. You're not alone, folks. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. You are not alone, and it goes back. Oh, isn't that good news? You're normal. Now, what are you going to do about it? It Depends how you frame it. What story do you want to write? We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, lighten your exhaustion load a little bit, playing a little game. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, back to school.
4: Back to school to prove to dad that I'm not a fool. I got my lunch packed up, my boots tied tight. I hope I don't get in a fight. Oh, back to school. That's the back
3: to school song. Back
4: to school.
3: You know, (laughs) everybody loves back to school time. Well. Everybody. Moms and dads. It is the greatest time of the year. And it's so fun to watch my kids getting up early, stressing about their homework so we thought we'd play a little game. And who better to help us game this up than Caitlin Thomas uh. Uh, dating the little drummer boy. The, the, the actual guy that <laughs> is in the drummer boy.
0: Well, I mean, he plays drums.
3: He's not little. He's a big stud. Um, anyway, don't know why I brought that up. <laughs> Talk to us. By the way, I brought it up, obviously, because there's no rhyme or reason today.
0: Matt, it's the most...
3: This is your Wonderful favorite commercial. Wonderful
0: time of the year. This is my favorite back to school commercial.
3: And what's the who's commercial is this? Is it what's the brand on the commercial? It's, I don't know. Let's say Target. Let's it's say Target. Target. Gran and they're running, and Mom the parents and Dad, are excited. They're
0: throwing school supplies in the cart, <laughs> and they're playing this song. Meanwhile... And the
3: kids are hating it.
0: Kids are sitting there pouting, just like, I hate this. That's
3: good. That's good. So the best. what's the game we will play? We'll how, play back what's to the back-to-school back school school game? Okay.
0: Actually, this might not be so fun for parents, because this is going to have some questions on how much money you spend Oh boy. On oh,
3: geez. But here we go. Okay.
0: So, true or false? These are true or false. Matt, okay. C- Crayola produces nearly three billion crayons each year. True or false?
3: Ah, uh, true. True. <laughs> Three billion
0: crayons every year.
3: Well, that's really only about...
0: But think of how many kids there are buying 600
3: crayons. 600 million crayons, but you have to make five different colors. and right. Whatever. Yeah. Okay, that's a lot. Boy, Crayola's got do you be have dealing. any statistics on how many crayons have been swallowed?
0: I No. We could look that up, though. <laughs> Red is the most popular crayon color. True or false?
3: I will say false.
0: False. It's good. It's actually blue. Is it really? Yeah. What would you have guessed?
3: Black. Because you outline your pictures in black. You've got to frame your picture. (laughs) Okay.
0: Back to school spending is supposed to reach an estimated $75.8 billion this year.
3: Back to school spending $75.8 billion, billion, I would say. True. True.
0: True. That is how much money will be spent on school supplies. That is a lot of money. And, like, school fees? Ugh. Free education, (laughs) Free education is is not free! Wow. A pencil can write 45,000 words or draw a line 35 miles long and will write in zero gravity, upside down, or underwater.
3: True, true, true. On the last three, I would say true.
0: All of that is True. (laughs)
3: Did you know pencil. that your
0: pencils are that powerful. How
3: long can how many how long can the line be?
0: 35 miles long.
3: Holy cow. You'd have One to sharpen it, of course. You have to sharpen it. That's that's good news. It's
0: pretty good. Back this is to an school easy quiz. and back to college spending serves as the biggest consumer spending event for retailers with the winter holidays coming in second.
3: So is this bigger than So is it winter? bigger than
0: Christmas spending?
3: No. False.
0: False. True. Winter spending comes in first, but school spending is second.
3: That's good to know, because I didn't want like Easter spending or Halloween Easter spending <laughs> to be more. Okay. So we spend that's good. What else? Christmas
0: and back to school. That's crazy. In the U.S., 40 million students carry a backpack.
3: <sighs> 40 million students carry a backpack. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's they could drag a backpack, too, because a lot of those backpacks are heavy. I would say... General? False.
0: False. What's your guess?
3: Uh, more.
0: Yeah, 79 million.
3: Matt, were you a two-strapper or a one-strapper? Pardon? Pardon? The backpack. Like a oh.
0: double backpack or like the uh, sling across your
3: chest backpack? I was a double backpacker until I then went to the sling backpack. It just depends on my age. Because there was a brief time when you weren't cool unless you only wore one strap. one strap. strap. Or like hey, it was a two strap backpack, but you only wore one of the yeah. straps. That's, I did that a lot.
0: Yeah, but seventy nine million kids carrying a backpack. You wonder why our posture is so bad. My mom gets right. mad at me, but I'm like, have you felt the weight of my backpack?
3: You know what? I started a trend in my high school where I put the backpack on my front and made it a front pack,
0: <laughs> and
3: uh, they, everyone thought I was pregnant.
0: Matt, this is what <laughs> this
3: well, is you I, have. Con- you have uh, <laughs> this is why immediate you were access. Not cool. Uh, this is why I got okay, it. Can we, so we like those. a kangaroo. Right.
0: <laughs> got one more for you. According to the National Retail Federation's 2013 Back to School Survey, families with school-aged children will spend an average of $634.78 on apparel, shoes, supplies, and
3: electronics. $638 per person? Just
0: families with school-aged children will spend an average of $634.78 on apparel, shoes, supplies, uh, and electronics.
3: That seems false.
0: Oh, that is true. What? On average, that is how much you will spend on school supplies, slash school clothes and shoes.
3: You know what, though, in a year. I, that's
0: crazy. I added oh, up your year. total.
3: That was you only got one wrong. I know.
0: Hey, you did pretty good
3: today. I almost ran the table.
0: Matt's the winner. There you have it. Though. Wow, that's so a- it is the most wonderful time for uh, the year because your kids are gone. But that's look at how much quiz. money you're coughing out for them.
3: Plus, we were just playing Andy Williams. <laughs> yeah.
4: That's
0: crazy. Stuff.
3: Yeah, that's a lot of money spent yeah. on our cute little kids.
0: So that they can look so that they can be the best dressed student in their classroom. See,
3: right there is why we that we call this no rhyme or reason day. Oh. There's no rhyme or reason to spend seven hundred dollars on kids. That idea is just the worst.
0: True. But for some reason we feel this attachment. We want our kids to have the cutest clothes and the cutest shoes. Don't
3: Did you just hear a voice? <laughs> Because I don't know if that was, I don't know if everyone heard that or was that someone talking to me?
0: Matt, is your conscience talking?
3: It's a good thing you're going into the doctor. You didn't hear a voice, did you? Talking about that idea was the worst? That must have just been in my head.
0: (laughs) (sighs) Well, good luck sending your kids back to school.
3: No rhyme or reason for that. Thanks, Caitlin. (laughs) Good quiz. I like quizzes. Yeah, I almost had. almost. I almost ran like the whole table. Like testing
0: Matt's brainy. He sits here for three hours. He needs to work his brain.
3: I stood for a minute and I got all winded. Well, he's wearing that <laughs> collar, so there are more fluids yeah. flowing to his brain. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start wearing my Q collar, <laughs> so I don't get concussions in the show. <laughs>
0: That's a great idea, because that happens often.
3: <laughs> you have no idea <laughs> how many times I've fallen out of this show. But to Stefania
0: back in here to talk about head concussions again. <laughs> we
3: ought do. I could anyway. We
0: Concussions in the office.
3: We've got a uh, we got a lot to talk about. Next hour, we will be getting into what you do as a parent with your kids and how it might be impacting uh, their success or not. So, uh, not just all the school stuff you got to do, but are the ways that you parent your kids sabotaging their own success in school? We'll get to that with Heather Ann Johnson, plus uh, our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation will be with us next hour, of course. And we're going to talk about a. a an employee that stole $6.7 million in ink printer cartridges. Big money. Stay with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and make it through the uh, start of school season. We'll be right back.